Okay, welcome to the 2011 Region 2 Convention. My name is Phil. I am a compulsory reader and the moderator for this session. Okay, got a few things I want to bring up here before we begin. Okay, are we having a good time? All right. We'd like you to take advantage of all other things in this convention that it has to offer to help Region 2 carry the message. If you liked what you've heard and want to take it with you, so have it all year round, please stop by the recording center tables outside the Houston room. Uh, they have CDs and MP3 downloads for all the sessions. If you saw Maria's stylish outfits during the play last night, uh, they were all from the Rags to Riches Boutique. Stop by and see what gems you can find. And this is one of them. Next door to the boutique is a silent, our silent auction. Bid on Dodger tickets, uh, computer printers, airline tickets, other wonderful prizes. Also, we have magnets and pins with every program saying known to man. Don't miss out or don't miss it. And let's see, visit our hospitality suite to have a quiet place to talk, find out about local places to visit, and look at somewhere for from other intergroups. And finally, we have t-shirts for sale across from the registration desk. Okay, please help us preserve our cherished tradition of anonymity by, refra by refraining from taking pictures in this or any other meeting room. Will everyone who cared to please join me in the serenity prayer? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. The title of this panel is Group Conscience, Not OA Opinions, Traditions 2 and 10. The format for this session is a reading from our literature, three speakers, and questions from the Ask It basket. As the speakers are sharing, we'll pass around a basket with paper and pencils for you to write any questions you may have. Please specify if you are directing your question to a specific speaker. Please be sure to keep the basket moving even if you have already passed it. As speakers continue to share, members may think of questions that they do not have when the basket first passed by. Okay, I will now read a, a few selections from pages 19 of the February 2011 edition of Lifeline magazine and page 146 of the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. I came to recovery sick and tired of being bullied, bossed around, and dominated. I came from the land of one person is right, so the other is wrong, and I always seem to be wrong. In this tradition, I've found tools for working with others, an antidote for isolation, and an opportunity to shed my victim attitude. Over the years, every conceivable deviation from our 12 steps and 12 traditions has been tried. That was sure to be, since we are so largely a band of ego-driven individualists. 
Children of chaos, we have defiantly played with every brand of fire, only to emerge unharmed and, we think, wiser. These very deviations created a vast process of trial and error, which, under the grace of God, has brought us to where we stand today. And it gives me good pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and that is Holly from San Fernando Valley, who will speak for 20 minutes. Hi, everyone. I'm Holly, Compulsive Overeater. It's a real honor to be here. And um, so I'm from the Valley. (laughs) There it goes. Um, To qualify, I've got... um, eight and three-quarter years of abstinence. I'm 140 pounds down from my top weight. And, um, you know, just by the grace of God and the grace of this program and working the program for these almost nine years, um, boy, I I can't tell you how much, how many conventions I've been to and how much, and that's a short time. I mean, I understand I'm just really a baby in program, but um, how much different I am from when I first came in. these two traditions, Tradition 2 and 10, um, I read up a little bit. I read the the AA 12 and 12 and the OA 12 and 12. And the funny part is um, two weeks ago, I'm in another program too, and I was asked to um, lead a meeting on Step 2, Tradition 2, and Promise 2. So I got to read, you know, the same thing, and I thought that was really, really funny. That it's just it, this month must be about tradition too, actually. So that was pretty cool. Um, to tell you a little bit where I came from and how this, how the traditions are, you know, I try to use them all the time, of course, because that's how I learned how to come out of my shell and get along in program. Um, I came from back east, and there was, you know, I, I grew up in almost total isolation. Um, I was really by myself most of the time. I was, I was always the equivalent of 280 pounds, but of course when you're 10, you're not 280 pounds, but it's just, you know, I was whatever I was, but I was always, always that much overweight. So I, I really didn't have, I really wasn't out in the world too much, and um, I was isolated. I, I didn't go into groups. I didn't really participate in much of anything except for band. So... Um, in my first 12-step meeting, I walked in, and, and I thought, I listened, and I saw a secretary there. And I thought the secretary was actually somebody special. And I honestly thought that for months. This, this woman was running the meeting. Week, I go week after week, and there she was running the meeting. And then when they had an election, everything changed. And I was, you know, that's a little, to a newcomer, who, you know, I just sat. I was, I'm so shy. I'm very, very shy. And I just sat in those meetings for the first six months and, you know, I just listened. Um, And to change that leadership over was really, I thought that is really weird. Um, But, but, you know, come to, then coming in course to this program, coming into Overeaters Anonymous, um, I was in before and I didn't participate a whole lot. But when I came in in 2002, I was really, I was done with, I was done. My disease had taken over everything that I had, that everything that I had to do. It had taken over my whole life. And I was really, I was really at a, at a point in my life that I was, I, I really needed to make a change. I was done, I was done with the food. Food was not working whatsoever. And I knew something had to change. So when I came in, I was willing to just sit and listen. 
I was willing with an open mind to just sit and listen. So that's what I did. Um, when I got a sponsor, my sponsor was very heavily into service. Of course, I didn't know that at the time. I just knew she was a 100-pounder and she was on her way down. That's, I mean, I was great with that. But, um, boy, she started me working the steps, and very quickly uh, she put me into service. And that's, you know, thank God. Thank God that she did that because, number one, it, it helped me open up and actually open my mouth and talk and get to know people and get to know you. And that started, that started my real recovery. Um, and two, being in service, I, I really got to learn about how the organization of Overeaters Anonymous can keep going, being, being self-supporting, and being not. Um, there's no governing. There's no govern. There's no governing at all. We just we get a new group every six. You know, all of my meetings. We get a new group of people every six months to take service commitments, and the meetings keep going. And that's it's as simple as that. So. For someone who really started and doesn't even open her mouth, and I watched this happen, and I took service commitments, and, you know, of course, in the beginning, I, you know, I stopped eating, I'm working the steps, but, you know, I, I'm still going to think I know everything, okay? And I'm going to say, well, I don't like how that runs. But, you know, I got to actually listen to how meetings run and, and how people make informed group consciences with God. I mean, that's how, you know... That's what I'm, I watched happen. And it was scary in the beginning to watch, a, 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 especially a big meeting, have a business meeting, and, you know, God forbid somebody should get mad. I would just like, whoa, back up. But um, what, it, what it's not like now is that, you know, every group, every group, OA as a group as a whole, plus every group, um, every meeting is a group in itself. So if I can be secretary of a meeting and there's some kind of, problem in the meeting you know we can it's like it's like working the first three steps in a meeting is taking a group conscience there's a problem we get there we know that god's in the room with us because we're all together and then we can do we can put the problem out to the group and get people to say the pros and cons i mean this is how we do it you say the pros you say the cons and you make a, a vote and the 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 results of the vote is is how we're going to run the meeting for whatever time and that's what that's how it goes it's nothing personal to anybody it's nothing you know like we don't have to get mad we don't have to if our friends want something we don't have to go with that it's just how the group conscience is and these meetings keep going and in the valley we have a lot of great meetings and there's a lot of big meetings and you know what they all keep running and that's how it works and what i can do is i can walk into a meeting and feel like I can feel safe in a meeting that it's running the way it's supposed to. So that's a really good indication when, you know, I can go into a meeting and feel safe and feel able to share and know that everything's going okay. Um, in tradition two also, there was a couple of things that, um, you know, I, <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but here's how I feel. When a meeting, I have two meetings, my, two of my regular meetings, what, they voted into the format um, to extend the meeting for three more shares, you know, and it's their hour meetings, and that's what they voted to do, and that just makes me crazy. I want to know that at 10 o'clock that meeting's going to be done. That's just me, by the way. Doesn't mean anything, but the people in the meeting wanted to have that in the format. So every week we have to vote. You know, how many people want to extend for three more shares, and they count and everything. Makes me nuts. But you know what? I, I just abstain. 
I abstain from voting. I don't really, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not going anywhere, but I just let it go. I mean, it's everybody else's decision. They want to do that. That's cool, you know. And um, I don't even roll my eyes anymore, believe me. So, but, that, you know, a, a meeting can vote anything into it, and that's how it goes. So that's, that's just how it, it doesn't matter. You know, I love these meetings, so that's where I'm going to be. Um, and Tradition 10, let's see, what was I thinking about Tradition 10? Um, I haven't had a lot of experience with meetings and, and bringing outside issues into meetings, really. I mean, once in a while you see something happen, but I, there's one perfect example that, that we came about. Um, there's a recovery from relapse meeting in the Valley, and we had to move from one hospital, and we got a room in another hospital. It just happened to be in a hospital. Um, we get this room, and it's a really, really, we get the whole cafeteria on a Sunday morning. We have to move the furniture, but we don't even have to put the furniture back, okay? And there's parking, and it's great. But there was, there was members of the meeting. Now, we're supposed to be fully self-supporting, okay? Uh, the hospital cannot take any money. They can't take money. They're not taking money for this beautiful room. And there was a couple of members in the meeting that tried. They tried. They, they, they really stressed out over trying to give the hospital, even the hospital's weight control internal program, give, okay, put our, okay, we'll give them money. Okay. Our payment for being at the meeting is that they need to have outside organizations have a meeting at their hospital. That's it. That's it. We're doing them as big of a favor as they're doing us. Let it go. I mean, it's like finally, just let it go. It's a beautiful room. We get to be there. We get to give this money from, you know, if we have 100 people, we get to give the money directly to our inner group. That's, that's the best way. So, um, you know, that's, this is how OA works for me, um, is by example. And I'm, you know, my recovery, like I said, I'm 140 pounds from my top weight, and that's just the weight. But the fact that I've gone, you know, almost nine years and going to meetings, and I've, I, the change in me is, is amazing. I mean, I mean, I had so many life changes, and I've had this program to back me up all the way. There's not been a time when I've fallen on my face. I fall, the meetings and my, my recovery people are there to catch me. Um, you know, even to the point where, I, you know, a couple of years ago, I, I, I did a lot, a lot of life changes. And it's okay. You know, I'm standing up here today, and I'm just grateful for my recovery. Um, really grateful for this program. So um, that's really all I have to say about it. So thanks for letting me share. Just want to make a reminder just to keep circulating the ask it basket there for questions later. Okay, and it gives me a great pleasure to introduce our second speaker. That is Laura S. from L.A., who will speak for 20 minutes. Hi, I'm Laura, compulsive overeater. Uh, it's a real honor to be here. Thank you, Karen, uh, to be speaking. Um, is this, can you hear me? Okay. Um, I came to OA in uh, August of uh, 1989, and um, 
I was uh, pretty desperate. And even though I had never joined any group in the past to help me with my addiction to food, um, I just, you know, I finally came to something because it was free. And, um, well, not only because it was free, because I had had uh, just my understanding of the 12-step program and the, uh, the little that I knew just sounded like it might actually be something that might help me. And when I came, I found um, people that were just like me. I never knew there was anybody that was just like me, the way I dealt with food, the way I felt about food, the way I ate food. I felt so alone and so um, ashamed. And um, I found other people, other fellows just like me. And I found hope. I just heard another speaker on a panel just talk about how there's two requirements for a, a great meeting, and that is identification and hope. And that's what I found. And I found it ever since. Um, I've been abstaining since August 26, 1989. And uh, so if I, one day at a time, it's almost 22 years. And I'm 70 pounds or so down from what I was when I got here, which that part of it has been a very slow, long-term process. And the more I focus on my weight, the less my weight changes. And the more I focus on a higher power and the steps and the fellowship, the, the, the smaller I've gotten. Um, could I? I just wanted to kind of look at those. Um, I, when I first got here also, all I wanted to hear was the dramatic stories. You know, I really, I just wanted to hear about how people came in misery and were now, you know, not miserable and more happy. And I heard that. I mean, that was, that was just such a great experience. And the traditions were like the boring thing that you listen to for, you know, however many minutes it took to read them, but I never really paid a lot of attention to them. And it was, and it's only been in the, in, in, you know, over 22 years that I've come to really love and appreciate the traditions and understand how absolutely crucial they, they are to the survival of, of our 12-step programs in OA. And, um, one of the ways that that was really helpful for me to to come to appreciate and to learn more about them was I started to read a lot of AA history and learn about how the that program was born and grew and the challenges that they faced that led to the necessity for the traditions. And interestingly, of course, for everybody who knows this story, you know, when Bill Wilson, tri founder of AA, co-founder, tried to introduce the traditions, nobody wanted to hear them. They were like, come on, Bill, tell us your, what's the word, um, your bedtime story or whatever they called it, you know, your white light story. They didn't want to hear about the traditions, but he kept at it. And, and as a result, AA, you know, was here so that when our co-founder in 1960, you know, she needed something, she had, she had the base, she had the 12 steps and the 12 traditions so she could start OA and we could be here today, you know, living a life beyond our wildest dreams. Um, so in reading all that AA history, and, and I've also just started to read uh, some OA history, which is very interesting in terms of the way that, that this program kind of mimicked a lot of that experience in AA. But um, I also, you know, uh, I go to another program, too, that, that studies the traditions. And also, it's funny what Holly said, because about a week or two ago, I was asked to share on the first three traditions in in, in my other program. And so I, I remember that 
one of the things that kind of struck me in the um, – I had like 10 minutes to share on three traditions, so I didn't spend a lot of time on each one of them. But the second tradition, um, when it talked about um, – when it says uh, – let me just read it. Tradition two is for our group purpose. There is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Um, I remember that when I was looking at this step in tr- or this tradition and trying to figure out what I could possibly say about it that sounded as great as my, st- my recovery story, um, I realized what it says it, it, is, it says a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. And I really seized onto that because when I came to OA, um, I didn't understand really anything very much about the steps. But I did, I did believe in God. But I came to understand that the longer I got here or the longer I was here and as I started working the steps that my concept of God was a punishing God and a judgmental God, and a God that that was open and loving to me when I was doing good or eating right or whatever. But when I wasn't and I was, you know, just being me, that uh, my understanding of God was that I wasn't good enough for, for God. So the way that I learned um, that... I had the opportunity, like it says in the steps, you know, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity and then made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him, as we understood him, was, of course, so crucial. And, and the, the, the step work I've done over the years has helped me grow an understanding of God that now is not judgmental and not um, punishing, but but is there is, is comforting to me and is, is a, a power greater than myself that does for me what I can't do for myself is not a Christmas or a Santa Claus God. But, you know, whatever life gives me, God helps me deal with that. And one of the ways I think that I was open and ready to, to really work that step, as I have many, many times over the years, but especially at the beginning, was because tradition, too, said a loving God. I mean, it documents the fact that God is a loving God. It doesn't, you know, I don't know that there's any other place that it says in in the steps or the traditions, and I may certainly be wrong, but, you know, where it really specifically defines God in that way, because we are all allowed to have whatever kind of a God, you know, or a higher power that we choose to have. But that tradition spoke to me so deeply and um, and then just to sort of applying it in the context that it is um, meant to be applied, this little reading here that Phil read earlier about, you know, I came from a place where uh, I, I came from the land of one person is right, so the other is wrong. I mean, that was my household. That still is how my parents grew up and that's how they, they tend to be. And the wonderful thing about this um, this tradition, and also this this also speaks to the tenth tradition of no opinions on outside issues, is that the more recovery I have, the more I work the steps and the traditions and stick around program and come to meetings and use the tools and um, mingle with my my fellows and 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 use the fellowship. And, and, a relation, and build a relationship with a higher power, 
that frees me from having to eat more than I need because again it's it's you know at the beginning it's more about the food but as we go on it becomes the food you know we recognize the food and the weight as a symptom and and we kind of get down to roots and causes or whatever I always whenever I use quotes for the big book I always mangle something so but um anyway what I was saying was that as I've healed my relationships with my parents and my family, um, I I no longer have to be, like, it, it used to feel like if I was wrong, I was going to die. It was a fear of abandonment. I thought I have to prove that I'm right because otherwise no one will like me. And I now know intellectually that that's not the truth, and it helps to... Um, I don't always believe that. I know it. I don't always believe it, but it helps to remember that that I can be I can be thought of as wrong, and I'm still going to be loved and okay. And an example of this was happened the other day. My mom called me and she said, "Did you do this, this, and this?" And I said, "No." And she said, and she went on as if I she hadn't heard me. I mean, she my mom is not does not have dementia or anything like that, but she she has she's 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 not the same woman that she used to be, and so I know to to have. Then she you know she said you know what she was going to say, and she she said that I had done something that I hadn't done, and it wasn't it wasn't a big deal. But I felt like well wait I I have to make her know that I didn't do that because, and then I was like well why you know so I I didn't argue with her, and it was a big it was a big achievement for me. I didn't get into it with her. I didn't have to be right because it didn't matter. And 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 that's as a result of of some step work I've been doing over the last couple of years, especially I mean six and seven. I've been living in six and seven for a really long time. I've just kind of gotten into eight and nine, and I I made some amends to her where you know she. All my life, you know, it was so important to me that my mom recognized how much she screwed me up and blah, blah, blah. And working the steps, it doesn't matter anymore. So when I, when she actually made amends to me, it was like, you know, wow, thank you. I didn't, it, but I didn't need it. And when I made amends to her, it was like, it was just, it was so healing. It was so, it was so great. And, and, and it's really, every time we talk on the phone almost, there's something that she says that, that isn't necessarily correct or she's also forgetting a lot that she's asked me something. So I used to get, yes, mom, I already told you that. Now when that happens, I say, I just give her the answer again and I don't have a tone. And that's, you know, I don't have to be right. I don't have to show her that she's, that she's wrong. So that's been a really um, great, great payoff for, for the use of the traditions because my mom is 80 my dad's going to be 90 in a week or two and I I have friends and relatives and associates all over the place who are parentless or you know one of their parents has died and my I get to I, I've had in, in 1998 is when I really kind of after I'd been in OA for for almost nine years or for for nine years um, I was able to let go of the rage and and uh absolute, you know, despair that I felt, would I ever feel love for my parents again? I was able to let that go. So I've had, what is it, 
like 13 years or whatever it is since 1998, of, of good relationship with my parents, thanks to this program, thanks to the steps. So I, I, I just, I love that, you know, tradition too has taught me that, you know, I don't have to always be right. I don't have to show that I'm right. And it doesn't matter in so many cases. Um, How much time do I have left? Don't tell me that. Fifteen. Yeah. Okay. You've already spoken for fifteen, so you've got twenty. Oh, so I have five left. Well, Holly didn't talk. Oh, that's okay. Well, I'll just speak for twenty. Okay. Um, so then the tenth tradition. Um, this one has also been a is a really really great great tradition. Um, you know, when I came into OA, I was so desperate because I thought that you know, I just I. All, whatever anybody tells me to do, I will do. But fortunately, nobody told me that I had to believe in, you know, God or that I had to do this particular food plan or that I, um, you know, that I had to go to 17 meetings a week or whatever. It was very much just about sharing experience, strength, and hope. And another thing about, um, you know, that, that there was no, there was no outside issues that there were no like there was no guru there was no um nothing they were selling i mean you know besides literature and stuff like that but that's not what i meant i you know i wandered into a room this morning that was um the wrong room wrong convention in fact but i knew it like like that like that because the guy had this big thing on the screen and he was exhorting people and you know it just there was just a tone in the room that wasn't the tone that would have been right for for an oa meeting so that was uh anyway you know nobody <clears throat> whether or not people believed in what i believe politically whether or not people were my religion or not whether or not people were uh argue, i mean agreeing over the events of the of in the news it, it wasn't brought into the meeting and um that was also very reassuring and comforting um uh, I, I think, you know, what this little passage that was read says is, um, you know, every single, over the years, every conceivable deviation from our 12 steps and traditions has been tried. That was sure to be since we are so largely a band of ego-driven individualists. Children of chaos, we have def defiantly. I, this, you said, was from the AA 12 and 12. But I think that's probably been the case in, in, in OA, too. And I was reading in the OA 12 traditions this morning, the 10th tradition, talking about how, and, and I think this has changed over the years. I'd be really curious to see whether they've updated this book. But there was a reference to, you know, we used to have food plans. And we used to tell people what to eat. And I realize that the food plans that are suggested today are, are but suggestions. But that was like so, I love that, 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 that OA in the past had, you know, had all these rules about how you were supposed to eat. And if you didn't eat that way, you weren't abstinent. That was before I got here, thank God. Because when I got here, it was... You know, it was a suggestion to eat three meals a day and abstain from all individual binge, binge foods, and that spoke to me. You know, but that doesn't speak to everybody, and it's okay, whatever your food plan is. I think, you know, the beautiful thing about, about Tradition 10 is really that we get to work the program like we um, 
like we need to, and, and we find if, hopefully we find a sponsor that helps us with that. And if we find a sponsor that doesn't help us with that, let's find another sponsor. Um, it, because as much as you know, politics and religion are outside issues to the group, so are you know, it, it's an outside issue whether I uh, I. It's an outside issue what I think of your food plan. It's an outside issue what you think of my higher power. So that's, you know, Tradition 10 is there to protect us from, you know, from being a cult. And and uh, we don't all have to think alike. We get the dignity of, of choice as far as being who we are And uh, in this fellowship. I, I am so thrilled that I must have somehow found 20 minutes or stuff to say for 20 minutes about this. <laughs> And it must be up by now. So thank you very much. Okay, great. And our third speaker is April. Hi, I'm April. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, April. Hi. Um, can you just stand up, please, for just a second? I was just, can we just... I, are you like... I think I'm sleepy because of the room. They're, they're, they're so, like, I really apologize for yawning while you guys are talking. It was fascinating, but, or maybe it's the afternoon at a hotel. Is that, could that be it? So I will not be embarrassed or, or offended if you stand or walk or lie down or sit or anything or move around um, or get a glass of water. Our glasses of water had lipstick stains on them, so we didn't drink it. Okay. Hi. You can sit down or keep standing. I don't care. I'm April. I'm a compulsive overeater. I think I just said that. Hi. And um, thank you, both of you, for speaking. I got a lot out of what you said. And I am very honored to be speaking today. Um, so let me just begin by saying that I have a dog named Eli. And Eli is a almost two-year-old Doberman-German Shepherd mix. And um, we got him when he was about eight months old. And I have been working him. I've never had a dog with a really long adolescence. I've never had a dog with such an obvious puppyhood that's so annoying. And therefore needs a lot of training on my part and is exhausting. Um, luckily, my only child is out of the house and in college. And I, it wasn't my choice. It wasn't, I, our old dog was so easy. I just thought we needed another dog who was easy. But so we got Eli to a wonderful point a couple of months ago where he was just part of the family and we all had, we, everything was copacetic, you know, he obeyed us and we loved him. And about three weeks ago, I said, Eli, sit. And he looked at me and he said, you're not the boss of me. And he walked away. <laughs> and then the next day when I left him alone, which I do for a couple hours, no big deal, and he's allowed certain rooms of the house and all the outside, um, He's allowed to sleep on a um, an old futon that I got in the uh, Salvation Army. That's old, but it's nice. I mean, it works in our house. He ripped it up completely to shreds. And I was, like, stunned and because he had done that when he was a puppy, but he wasn't doing that anymore. And then two days later, he ripped up a chair that I really like. So I went to my friend who's a rescue guy, and he rescued Eli, and he's become a good friend. He's a trainer. And I said, what's going on? And he said, he doesn't believe you're the alpha dog anymore. So you need to take away all privileges, no more dog park, back to discipline walks, lots of commands. Because even when he's alone, he's so anxious because there are no boundaries. So this is a long way of 
a metaphor for us, which is I so need boundaries. I need them. I need you to tell me what the rules are and that I'm comfortable, which is why OA works for me and doesn't necessarily work for other personalities. I love everybody sits in a circle or whatever. You have three minutes. I'm not allowed to talk. You know, I just love that. It works so well for me. And I can't respond to you. I can't bat around what you've just said unless it's a compliment. Um, so I'm going to go, I'll go back to who I am, but I, I just think to me that's maybe what we're dealing with here in this today. So um, I came into Overdue's Anonymous in um, December 1975, and it took me six years to get absent. So I count my absence from February 11, 1981, which means I have 30 years this year. And I've lost between um, 50 and 60 pounds, and my food plans have changed, excuse me, tremendously. Um, when I came into OA, I started in Sacramento. I was going to UC Davis, and I would drive all the way into Sacramento, which was half an hour, but it was, it felt like this huge commitment. It was a big deal for a college student to, you know, figure out how to get there. Um, and, uh, we had orange sheet and gray sheet at that time. And orange sheet had bread, so I cooked that one. <laughs> gray sheet didn't have bread, right? And now here's the delusional side of me. Um, it, never says in there and you get one extra glass of milk besides your three days. I, I don't know where I got this. I had in my mind that I got one extra glass of milk besides the, the eat food and food plan, three meals a day. And so that tide I made with crushed ice and in the blender and different flavors and sweet and low and all that stuff. And that glass of milk, it was like God said, I know you can't really do three meals a day. I'm going to help you here, you know. Um, over many years, I've tried many different things. And the thing that I'm on now that has helped tremendously is my bottom lines are no sugar and absolute honesty. And I really liked what you said, both of you, um, but specifically Laura, which was it's an outside issue what someone else thinks of my son or what's, what I think of someone else's, which is my job is to be honest to myself, my sponsor, and to my meeting. And I, as, as painful and embarrassing it is, I will tell them, if pressed, exactly what I ate. I might say I had a, a big meal, but if someone comes after me afterwards, I will tell them because that's my personal commitment. If they don't think it's abstinent and that I don't have 30 years, that's fine. They're allowed. But it's, it, this is what has worked for me. This is something that it's, I had to make a big enough door that I could go back and forth and in and out of it so that I knew that I could keep this absence till I was 90, till I died. Um, so, and the last thing I'll say is, um, well, I came into Overeaters Anonymous not believing in God at all. In fact, being um, an atheist, really, um, and raised by atheists, proud of it. And I was really afraid when I heard about God that if I accepted any kind of belief in that, that I would be alienated. I would not be able to speak to my family, that it would be a chasm between us. Um, so my definition of God, when I first came in, I worked with my first sponsor, and he said, you know, you just need something you can turn your problems over to. So my, my metaphor for me was a stage and a, 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 like a, a theater chair, and on that chair I could carry my Santa Claus bag full of troubles, and I could put it on the, cha on the chair and then walk away, and they weren't mine anymore. That was my first concept of God. So now I'm going to go back and talk about the traditions and all the things that came to me when I was looking on the Internet and reading some of Bill's words about it last night. Um, 
Tradition 2, I'm just going to read them again for you because I need to hear them again. For our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. So what that means to me is um, there was a time that I went to meetings in West L.A. because there was a very charismatic man who held them, and he was always the leader. And we all flocked to him. And uh, it was not a healthy way to be in a way. That's not what OA is about. It's about all of us because all of us have something. I teach um, UCLA Extension and I've teach, taught their um, writing for over 10 years. And what I finally learned in these classes is the first class you need to hear who each student is because many times they have a lot more experience than I do. And so the class is really about our, a collective experience. There's not one person, and the, the, more, the more I've learned about good teaching, the more is I say less, and the class participates more. And that's why OA is so effective, and it's so damn effective. Program structure is so effective if we don't screw it up, and we can't seem to be able to do that. Um, what Bill W. says at what point, he wrote something in the AA Grapevine in January 1948. It's not that long, and I just looked up Tradition 2, and it came up, so I'm sure if you Google it. Um, with, this, with respect to its own affairs, the collective consciousness of the group will, given time, almost surely demonstrate its perfect dependability. And I think given time is a big thing. I'm a very impatient person, and I don't always see that it's over time that we get healthier. For example, there's a woman in, who used to go to the maintainers meeting in West L.A. who would come with 20 necklaces, and she was a nutcase. I mean, I think he would agree as an outside observer that there was something really wrong with her. But over time, she wore less and less necklaces. And I could see her in so many different ways get healthier. And in the same way, I think our meetings do. Um, I started a meeting in the South Bay when I moved down to Manhattan Beach that initially was me and my big book. And then it was me and my big book and maybe one other person. And, and for about three years, there were just two or three of us at any one time. And I just came and read the big book. And now there's generally 16 of us, and we sit around a table, and we've had to work out who we are. I almost think a smaller meeting sometimes has, it's challenging to figure out who you are as a meeting and what the rules are and what the format is than um, maybe a bigger one. Um, okay, so the other thing I was reading about is that uh, our meetings are sort of like an individual, but that Bill W. says, just as an individual, every AA group follows the same cycle of development. We come to realize that each group as well as each individual is a special entity, not quite like another. And I thought, you know that, that Supreme Court ruling about Citizens United in which they declared corporation was an individual? You know, in, a, in OA, it really makes sense because each meeting has its own personality. And I can get comfortable with one and maybe not with another, but it has the boundaries that my dog and I both like, and I feel safe in, in all of them. Um, this Friday, um, I came to our little meeting, and um, actually the leader, Janice, is here today. So she was the leader today. And I was going to talk about this even though I didn't know you were in the room. Um, so in my mind, I'm such a controlling person, I'm thinking, no, no, that's not right, and that's not right. And I just thought, don't say anything, don't be so controlling. And then she did the loveliest thing that made such an impression on me. When I want people to stay on time and only pitch three minutes, um, you know, we usually have a timer. But if we don't, I'll go gently like this time. And I always think, I'm such a good leader. Look at how gentle I do that. Aren't I important? 
And she did something different that was better. She said, well, look, we don't have a lot of time. We have a lot of people want to share. So could you all please keep it to three minutes? And what that did is it put responsibility on each of us. It was really mind-blowing to me, I have to tell you. I thought, that is so cool. And that's sort of what program does in the way it creates meetings. The boundaries are each of us takes responsibility, not one person, not one dictator. Um, and that no one gets cemented into a position. You know, as, as you said, Holly, when you came in, you think, oh, they're the leader. They're the leader forever, just like the Light Watch or something, which I've never been to, so I don't know what I'm talking about. But I think, I think, you know, so I've not, I have no idea. Um, but instead, they change, and everybody has to, especially in a small meeting, has to pick up the weight. And then Laura, or I'm not sure which one of you are talking about, oh, learning not to necessarily say what you're thinking. Um, I have a wonderful brother-in-law who is quiet. My sister and I aren't, and so we both married someone who was. And Alan, my brother-in-law, was at a party with my sister, and they were talking in a little group about something Alan knows very well, knows a lot about, and when she, they left, my sister said, why didn't you say anything? I mean, you know so much. He goes, well, I know what they know, and I know what I know. You know, it's like he felt richer for it. He didn't feel like he necessarily needed always to contribute, which for me is mind-blowing. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, here's one other example which kind of takes us back to Eli, and then, I, I mean, that, that's probably enough, which is early on I remember leading a meeting in Beverly Hills High School and I, you know, maybe had six months of absence, I don't remember, but I was full of myself. And um, at that, and I, I think you were the leader and the speaker of the meeting at the same time. So I guess I was supposed to keep track of my own time. And I lost, you know how you do, I lost complete track of time. In fact, I lost complete track of time here, too. Um, I just lost it. And I, I was so interesting to me. And I, wanted, and I wanted to tell you everything I knew. And I was speaking just long timers and stuff, everything. And I wasn't even, I was kind of tone deaf about how people were getting bored or annoyed or whatever it was. And it wasn't a good thing for me or for them. I have always felt embarrassed about that. Now, probably need to do a 10 step on that, but um, it didn't, I didn't hurt anybody. But it wasn't a healthy thing, what I was doing. I was sharing too much. They didn't have a chance to share. And no one stopped me. And no one said, I think your time's up because it's all of our meeting. It's not just one person. On the other hand, maybe, maybe their feeling, you know, this is legitimate too, is I guess she needs to talk. I'll help her. I'll let her figure it out. So, you know, their process may have been very different too. So uh, those are my thoughts about steps two and ten. I'm really glad you're here, and I hope you have questions. Thank you. Okay, we will now have questions from the Ask It Basket. And um, it's amazing. None of these questions are addressed to just one specific speaker. So it's to any one of the speakers. And I start from the bottom of the, of the bucket here. Uh, the first question is this. How do you feel that compassion and connection to HP supported your journey to any speaker? How do you feel that compassion and connection to HP supported your journey? Yeah. 
That's a big question. I'm Holly, compulsive overeater. I wouldn't have had a journey if I hadn't have worked the steps. And the steps brought me to um, my higher power to actually, it wasn't even that, I knew I had a higher power, but it brought me to a connection with my higher power, something that I was comfortable with, something that I was, um, I trust my higher power. I can give my higher power anything. Um, and that I got that by working the steps. And that's, that's the only way I got to where I got to today because um, just losing weight doesn't make any sense. It, it, you can go to Weight Watchers for that and pay a few bucks, you know, and that's it. You'd leave it at home. You go once a week. How about that? Um, that wouldn't work for me. But um, I'm not someone. I, you know, I'm. I'm. Abs- I understand that I'm an absolute compulsive overeater, and regular things don't work. So my program includes and is based on a spiritual connection. Um, I don't know any other way to say it. That every every morning I have to hook up. Every morning I get up at 4:15. So I got time to pray and meditate, read and write, get my assignment ready, and take my sponsee calls. That's what I do. That's how I get here today, and that's what I'm grateful for, actually. So um, that's my connection to my higher power. That's why I'm here. Thanks. Okay, next question. When the group conscious doesn't go your way, and you feel very strongly about the issue, what steps do you take to learn to adapt and ultimately accept the decision, particularly at the times when it's not easy? I'm Laura, compulsive overeater. I also just want to speak to the previous question regarding compassion because that has that word particularly has helped me um, uh, over time as I've worked the steps recognize that when somebody um, behaves in a way that I think is judgmental towards me if I give them back compassion oh that's really unfortunate that they're judging me that's how I get free of it so Compassion for myself in my relationship with my higher power has been been a really useful tool. Um, I was I'm glad this question got asked because one of the things I was thinking about when I was going to preparing for this share um, was to tell this little story about how I, I go to this meeting on Sundays. It's a big book study, and I've been going to it for probably 12 or 13 years, and. Um, we used to read the first 164 pages of the big book, and then we would start over. And uh, one a couple of years ago, somebody uh, suggested that we start start reading the stories in the back of the big book. And not only that, but we should stop reading the third edition. We should go to the fourth edition. And I was like, "There's no way that's going to work. There's no way that we should be reading the stories because then we're never going to get to the." 164 pages again, which is really, I mean, it's so crucial to, to my program. I, I read the big book over and over again, you know, for myself, and having it as part of my meeting was really important. And then the nerve of them to talk about going to the fourth edition, well, wait, you don't understand. The third edition really has the best stories. So I was, <laughs> I was pretty self-will run riot, and um, I couldn't see how that would be helpful. 
so I, I, you know, and my sponsor goes to this meeting, and so I was like, How, what are we going to do, you know? And she's like, well, I think it's all right, you know, we'll be okay. And so my process in in that was to come up with the reasons that I thought that it was important that we, A, not read the stories, and B, stick with the third edition. Well, look, we have all these books. What are we going to do with them? And, you know, I, I came prepared to the meeting, and I shared my my reasons. And then I heard other people sharing their reasons. And somehow in the process of that, you know, um, giving voice to what I felt and what I wanted and writing, writing my resentments, you know, I wrote also, like I think someone was saying, or maybe it was in a different meeting, just writing down about how angry I would be if this would happen and what, you know, what am I going to do? It, that that process was very helpful um, in in when the vote came, and I think 90% of the people voted to read the stories and go to the fourth edition. You know, I didn't feel devastated. I was like skeptical, but I I was okay. And that, and then it took me probably six months or so. I already had a fourth edition that I was already reading. That's why I knew the stories were better. <laughs> no. Totally, totally not the case, really. It's just I'm so resistant to change. I'm so much a creature of habit. I love the rules because they give me the boundaries, but sometimes I forget that, that you know, freshen, freshening things is, is a good thing, too. Anyway, it's now, what, three or four years after that, and I'm like, why was I – well, I can't even figure out why I – objected to it. I love when we read the stories. I love to hear, especially the newer stories that I haven't read as many times as I've read the older stories. So I guess, you know, kind of keeping an open mind, take what I liked and leave the rest. I could have gone to another meeting, but I, I didn't have to because I did that step work and I became, I, I, I used the process of the traditions and the group conscience spoke and it's all good. Okay, next question. Actually, it looks like it's two parts. Okay, when someone does or says something that's not in keeping with the spirit of the tradition, whose responsibility is it to tell them? And second part is, how should I go about telling someone that they are violating the traditions? I'm April and a couple of over eater. Hi, April. I just think it's everybody's responsibility. So whoever feels comfortable, if it affects me, if it's important to me, then then it's up to me to tell them. If I went up to the secretary and I suppose one way would be to go to the secretary of the meeting and to and to discuss it with the secretary. But if I'm the one who's feeling it strongest, then maybe it's up to me to say it. On the other hand, maybe I'm not the most diplomatic, then maybe someone else should be saying it. Try to think of a, an example. Um, well, I know how it was done once to me that was was uncomfortable. I I had a, I wrote, read a quote from you know like Khalil Gibran or something. It's short. And someone yelled out uh, that that was inappropriate. And um, 
maybe it was. I mean, I, I don't know. That's a kind of an iffy area. It was a quote within my pitch. But it was, um, it felt like it was inappropriately delivered. So maybe I, maybe it would have been okay for me to just, for them to just let me finish my pitch and then maybe I would have learned as much if they'd come up to me privately. Um, the other thing I have done though is I have talked to a friend who knows more about the traditions than I. So I will call up someone or I will email someone from the big, and just pass something by them because I don't always really know. It can be a very gray area. So I will check you know, and if they think it's inappropriate, and, you know, and I just recently that happened within the last year, and I can't remember what the the issue was, but we decided it was a non-issue. Um, I hope someone else has something to offer because that's all I know. <laughs> this is a good question here. <clears throat> How do you deal with a situation where someone shares? Their HP is the only true HP, and any other HP is false. Sure. How do you deal with the situation where someone shares their HP is the only true HP, and they have any other HP is false? You know, you don't. Anybody who wants to pay, you can... You can, in your three minutes, boy, you can pretty much say anything, right? You, that's your three minutes, and it's your opinion, absolutely. Um, I always, like, say half kidding and half not. God, I hope there's not a newcomer here sometimes, you know. But it doesn't, right? But it doesn't matter. I, there's, I, I don't think there's anything that anybody can do. It's up to the person's sponsor, I suppose, to correct that. And a lot of these things, you know, I, I, if I make a mistake, I hope that somebody or my sponsor tells me that's not appropriate or that's whatever, you know. And I'm very free with the last question, too. If I think something's being violated, I'll, the best thing for me is just to go right directly to the person because my personality wants to go to somebody else and say, do you know what they did? I got to go right in. No texting, by the way. <laughs> Go right to the person and say, I think what you did is a violation and maybe, you know, maybe you should just think about that or that's my opinion. But that's how, that's how I, I, I'm much more clear that way. Thanks. Okay. How do I take care of myself or OA? I guess that's what that means. Um, without feeling guilty in the context of my relationship, my boyfriend of five years, traditions, steps, and sponsor. Can we read that again? Oh, okay. How do I take care of myself without feeling guilty in the context of my relationship? So myself meaning in terms of OA without being feeling guilty in the context of my relationship, boyfriend of five years. And then traditions, question marks, steps, question mark, sponsors, question mark. That was really a challenge. I mean, that really, I think that's the gut of the program, which is this program has to be the most important thing in my life without exception. I mean, that's for, for me, that's, that's why it took me six years to understand this program because I didn't make it a priority. And it's 
the priority. In fact, um, I remember years ago, I, I worshipped the ground upon which my husband walked. And someone in OA came up to me and he said, your God and your program has to come before your husband. So I got another ring for that. You know, I mean, and that to me represented God and my, and then there was my husband who was also a God, but lesser God. Um, so how do I take care of myself? So it has to be the most important thing in my life without exception. So, for example, when Aunt Sylvia, who I adore, gives me a second serving, but that's not what I committed then I have to say no thank you even though I know it will hurt her feelings and I adore this woman. And and I have to, even though I, you know, in the long run, you know, a couple years later I'll go, but it would have hurt me too. I can't see that in the, in the short run. All I think of is I'm a nice person and I need her to know that I'm a nice person and I don't want to hurt her. What I've also found in this is that I used to be made of glass and I really was very fragile and easily hurt. And so I assumed everybody else had the same in inside and was also fragile and made of glass. When I got tougher about my needs and thought, I am going to crush other people, they're going to be so hurt, I discovered that they were tougher than I assumed. And, and it, it was very liberating. So, um, so in terms of the food or, for example, when I really got serious with this program, my sponsor said I needed to go to a meeting a day, every single day. And if I went to a meeting late, it didn't count. And you can imagine the havoc that that played in my life. I was a young woman. I was um, dating the man I was going to marry. I was in a full-time corporate job. I had no time. And so I said, well, I ha I, this was a Tuesday night. I saw her and um, I said, but on Thursday I have Lakers tickets. <laughs> And she said, well, can you go to a meeting tomorrow? We were at a meeting that day. So I said, yeah, but on Thursday I have Lakers tickets. She said, well, well, let's just do it one day at a time. And by, by Thursday morning, I was willing to give up my Lakers tickets. So it just had to become the most important thing. So in terms of the traditions, the steps, and sponsor, um, so, for example, I won't go to bed at night unless I've emailed my sponsor my 10th step, which includes what happened during my day, five reasons that, that I'm grateful for the day, and my food, my specific food that I ate. And I've been doing this for, like, years. And that means sometimes that when I go to bed, my husband's asleep. And that does impinge on a relationship. It, it, it feels rude at times. But he gets it. You know, he gets it. And... And it, I, it, it doesn't matter if it gets it on. I, it needs to be okay for me. Um, yeah, so that's the best I can do in answer to that. Maybe someone else wants to. No, okay. Okay, looks like we have one more question here. And we got about 10 minutes left. Okay, please share how these traditions apply to our lives. Um, family, work, and relationships. Hi, I'm Laura, compulsive reader. Hi, Laura. Hi, Laura. Um, this, this, the traditions have been really helpful in my work. Um, I, I, I have my own business. Um, it's taken me a long time to uh, improve my levels of compassion for people so that my my feelings that I have to show them how smart I am and how much I know, you know, often come off like, or used to hopefully not so much anymore, come off like, you know, smart alecky and fresh and, 
you know, not particularly attractive, but I thought it was attractive because I thought, well, of course I know this. And um, I also kind of delighted in, well, kind of coming from a place where I felt like I was always being told what to do and I was always wrong and I was always, you know, unable to say no, it, it helped me for a while to say no and to be not, I mean, not to not be nice about it, but it was a, it was a real accomplishment for me to say no. And now, when a client asks me for something that I roll my eyes, you know, or I call my business partner and we like, you know, now I don't respond to them by saying, um, no, that can't be done. I don't think I ever really said, well, that's a stupid idea. But I would, I would imply it by the words that I use to respond. Now, I think about the first tradition, our common welfare should come first. And um, our common welfare is that we're part, we, meaning me and my client, are partners in a venture that, that is meant to benefit both of us. And so I think about how I can respond. I, I think about how people who's, who I really admire respond to others. Like one person once talked about how something that my business partner and I had done was, was I mean, she meant it, it was a mistake and a problem, but she used the word challenge. This, was a cha this is a challenge. And I was like, wow, that's really great. And now I never use the word problem. I always say challenge because it's such a more comfortable word. And when somebody asks me to do something that I either don't think should be done or, or I don't want to do, my response would, would be more often now to think about how to say, how to respond if, some, if I had asked the question. And I hate it when people appear recalcitrant and don't want to do something I've asked them to do. So I, I think of our common welfare and probably a bunch of other traditions that are just not coming to my mind right now, but, but how, you know, treating people with, with love and respect um, will ultimately get me what, what I want. And it, it, it works for my family, too. You know, I mean, with my mom, you know, and she'll tell me, you know, she wants me to, to live my life the way she, she would. And she and I are really different, and she never quite gets that. But she, she wanted to tell me uh, where my husband and I should go when we go to Europe. She was giving me pages of, you know, directions and... And I, I, it was always my instinct to say, you know, Mom, I, I don't want to do that, or don't tell me what to do, because the kid in me, you know, immediately kicks in, and they, I think she's saying that, that I don't know what I'm doing. But she isn't. She wants to help. So now I, I thank her for it. And, when, and, you know, again, our common welfare should come first. When we went last year to... to, to uh, to England and, and we didn't go this one place she wanted us to go. She she will not drop it, you know, but you didn't go to Harrods, you know. And, <laughs> and I'm, you know, I, I, again, I used to be much more defensive about it and I would, I would just try to talk to her, talk, talk her out of it. And now I just go, yeah, we didn't, we didn't get there. It's like, it, it's not such a, a big deal. I hope this is tradition related. I know there's a lot of steps in it, but it really, in terms of our common welfare should come first, that is absolutely something in the last couple of years that I, it is a driving force in my life, our common welfare should come first. What's the best for both 
parties because that's going to get us both, you know, in, in a good place. Okay, I want to please help me to thank the speakers for sharing their experience, strength, and hope. It is now time to close the session. Please join me in a moment of silence, followed by the, I put my hand in yours. <laughs>